So I've got my eyes peeled, if you like, for moments in the culture, whether it's my mother's life or, or Monroe, where an impossible demand is being made on you to make, this is the heart of the mother's book, to make the world okay when it isn't, it isn't. Hello and welcome to Confessions. I'm Giles Fraser. This is the podcast where I'm joined by well-known people in an attempt to find out what it is that makes them tick. I'm going to try and drill down into some of their core beliefs to understand better who they are and what they're on about. Bearing her soul to me in the store this week is Jacqueline Rose, Professor of Humanities at Birkbeck, well-known writer on feminism, psychoanalysis and lots more besides. Jacqueline, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Charles. It's very nice. Now, listen, I'm fascinated to uh, have this opportunity to sit and talk to you. What we, what we tend to do to start with is just ask people to talk about where they come from. So geographically and home and what the values were in the home. So I wonder if you could start off by saying a little bit about that. Well, it's a long story. I'll try and be as succinct as possible because... Home was Hayes Middlesex, as opposed to Hayes Kent, which was a working-class town in the outskirts of London uh, that was feeding the Nestle factory next to Southall, which was feeding the rubber factory with the 1950s migrants who were brought in because the British working class couldn't bear the heat inside the factory. And so we were a middle-class family because my sister and I we were the doctor's daughters. Your dad was a doctor, My GP. was a GP. My stepdad was a GP. Um, so Alison, Gillian and I lived in a middle-class home, in the middle-class street in a working-class town. Okay. And I think that had a huge impact on the way we saw the world because we were immediately aware of our privilege. Uh, the street had the undertaker, the pastor and the doctor. Um, we were encouraged to see ourselves apart, so we didn't socialize hugely with the community, uh, apart from a few neighbors. And the fact that we had to drive through Southall or be driven through Southall, which is where, of course, Blair Peach was killed many decades later, really alerted us to questions of both class and race from a very, very early age. And my mother was a solid liberal Anti, anti-nuclear anti weapons, anti-racism, and she wore that on her sleeve. I mean, I've met was, your wonderful mother. It was, you have, <laughs> she would return the compliment, Dad. <laughs> and she really, really took her political beliefs very, very seriously and hoped we would adopt them. But to really understand our family, you have to go back to the generation before. And that's because when you said geographical, I thought, well, what am I going to answer? Am I going to say Widge in Poland or am I going to say Hayes Middlesex in London? Because the family originally came from Widge in Poland. And where, is it, where in Poland is that? Well, it's you have to pronounce it L-O-D-Z and then you'd know where okay. it was. Right. Okay. My <laughs> family came it. from there too. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I've been told recently you're meant to pronounce it Vuj. That, I didn't know that. That's, that's why I was like, right. okay. okay. So they came oh, well, there you go. from that part of Poland and... The story in the family was that the reason why my maternal mother, uh, maternal grandmother and maternal grandfather did not go to Chemlo, where the whole of their family went, was because they had left Poland as very young, young couple who could not wed in Poland because they came from different Jewish communities. 
So they ended up, or one of them was already in London, the other one arrived, and then they sort of, they got married and they had my mother and her sister. Um, but one of the strongest images we were given as children was of my mother discovering her mother weeping on her bed with the telegram telling her that the whole of her family had been wiped out in Poland, crumpled in her hand. So in order to understand our background, you have to understand that there was that historical devastation, one generation behind it. And so it meant that for people like my mother and my father, and then my mother and my stepfather, establishing a kind of solid, middle-class, English style and identity was more than just arriving. It was sort of saving yourself. So it was very contradictory because there was the trauma on the one hand, there was the comfort of the home, and there was the creeping sense before we'd even had time to get used to the first two things that actually there was something wrong because of the level of privilege. Did, did they we talk? Did they talk about um, what had happened in Poland? Was that one of those? Was it? Was it one of those families that didn't talk about that? They didn't or? talk about it at all. They never, never um, sat us down and explained that the reason why my maternal grandmother and father were so narrow-minded was because of the dreadful trauma they'd gone through. So no German cars, no uh, German objects, um, total distrust of non-Jews. So very early on, I must have been about 12, I remember my grandfather saying to me, have you got a boyfriend? So I said, well, yes, actually, feeling rather pleased with myself. Is he Jewish? It was all that mattered. And I remember my grandmother once saying, you'll think it's okay, but I promise you if he's not Jewish, it's not okay, and you'll know when you have your first big bust up. He'll turn on you as a Jew. That's what I was brought up to believe. And, of course, it's because they felt that Jews had to rely on themselves, that the world was inherently dangerous and terrifying. And they, want, and they also wanted to establish a kind of continuity through the family. But that I only understood much, much, much later. Uh, none of it was ever explained. My mother and stepfather, we would go every Sunday for lunch to my grandparents. My mother couldn't stand it. She couldn't stand her mother. She had good reasons for that. Her parents had stopped her going to medical school as a young woman and married her off at 19 to a man 13 years old than her who'd come back from the war, completely traumatized by the torture he'd undergone. So she had a case for rage. Um, but what it meant is there was no empathy and no historical understanding and, above all, no real telling of the story. So it was a, it was a family with ghosts in the, in the house that you weren't allowed to talk about. Indeed. That's a very good way of putting it. And one of the strange things that happened to me is when I was working on Sylvia Plath in the late 80s, early 90s, I found myself completely obsessed with her engagement with the Holocaust in her poems like Daddy and Little Fugue, which is less well-known but more brilliant. And people were appalled at her invocation of the Holocaust um, in her poetry, and I felt this is wrong. I felt she's trying to understand something. If people who weren't involved in the Holocaust can't poetically get in there, then the whole memory of it is just going to dissipate. We actually need people to think this is my story in some way or another. So I started researching it, and I started researching the first time the Psychiatric Institute had gone to Hamburg since the war and what it meant for them to go there. And I found out it was a time when we weren't particularly in touch with each other. 
that Gillian was working on Fackenheim and Holocaust theology. This is your sister. My sister Gillian Rose, the distinguished philosopher <coughs> who died 23 years ago. And Brian Murray, our first cousin who we were very close to. Uh, so Gillian was working on Holocaust theology and Fackenheim and mounting what remains one of the best critiques of that Bergen-Belsen to Jerusalem notion of uh, the legacy of the Holocaust in the redemption of Israel. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful essay she wrote. And our cousin was doing a staging of Macbeth at the Royal Exchange Theatre Company where he was for nearly 40 years. He just died this summer. Um, which he staged in a concentration camp. Oh, my word. So he staged the production of Macbeth in a, Hol in, in a concentration camp so that the inmates are performing the evil which they are suffering, as if they have to take it on themselves as something that they are also part of as at the same time as it's destroying them. So psychically, that was the most progressive and extraordinary thing to do. So what they were both doing was remarkable, but none of us knew we were doing it. So it was as if the three children of the first marriages, there were other children afterwards, uh, my sister Alison, my sister Diana, my brother Anthony, but it was as if the children of those first marriages, who were closest to that history, therefore, had had to find a way back to the story, had had to find their own way back. There's, there's a. I talked about ghosts because there's a. There's there's two. I'm sure you'll you'll remind me what their names are. There's two Hungarian psychoanalysts called Abraham, Abraham Torok, and Torok, Abraham, and they talk about Nicholas Abraham and Maria Torok. That's it. And yeah. they talk about transgenerational haunting, don't they? This is this is funny idea. I, I say it sounds. I mean, that's why I talk about ghosts because the idea that 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 some sometimes the unsaid in a in a family carries this sort of something that needs to be got at, and you know the, the three of you just responding to something like that. Well, Nicholas Abraham and Maria Tarok's work, and particularly Abraham's essay, Notes on the Phantom, which I always tell my students is only four pages long, so I'm not making a big ask here. I don't warn them that I'm making the biggest psychological ask since the <laughs> interpretation of dreams. But anyway, uh, that article is one of the most important articles in the psychoanalytic panoply for me. And it's absolutely remarkable because what they say is that, well, it starts with a case. And the cases of this young man who's obsessed with uh, baronetcy and hereditary and sort of the insignia of noble transition on the one hand and the habits of sperm whales on the what? other. <laughs> right, okay, so the, the, I never thought we'd talk about this. <laughs> these are his two great obsessions. Right. And it sh slowly emerges in the course of the analysis that his mother was illegitimate, but nobody ever told him, and that therefore he is performing in his obsessions the unspoken history of the family. Um, and it's out of that that the concept of transgenerational haunting comes, which is precisely that a generation goes silent, and the next one, because it has not been spoken, start to live the story that hasn't been told. And then I met Maria Tarok, um, and she said they'd come from Hungary, and they found an awful lot of their patients were second-generation Holocaust survivors. Um, and some of them had come from the Lacanian couch, which would talk of absence and lack and destitution. But they had another story they wanted to tell, which they found they could tell in an environment which was marked with the brush of the Holocaust because these were Hungarians and had a notion of the unspoken as historically skipping. 
a generation. So Sounds just like your family situation. Exactly the same. Yeah, exactly the same. I think it's you know something. I think it's very common. Was it was yours a um, was yours a pious household? Or was it a was it a Jewish household in any sort of in terms of masking festivals or all those sorts of we things? We did well. We did the high holidays. We would go to the grandparents for Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah and so on. Um, but we also had a Christmas tree. My mother was very much of the spirit. We celebrate everything, which was a nice multicultural position to take. But beneath that, there's something more distressing, I think, which is that because my mother had been so constrained by what was acceptable for a young girl to do and to train as a doctor was not acceptable. It was bound up with evacuation and danger and going back into London and so on. But nonetheless, she felt she had been seriously curtailed. And so Jewishness for her represented oppression. I see. And um, she was, as I say, she was married at 19 to a man much older than her. He had to be Jewish. It was It's as close as you can get to an arranged marriage, my mother's marriage. So for her, Jewishness was not, she had no sense of the creativity the legacy, the principle of righteousness that runs through and justice that runs through Jewish theology and so on. For her, it was just an oppressive law. So we were brought up in a reaction against religion because my grandparents were very strict. So they were of the the group that if you they had two sinks, milk and meat, and if you made a mistake, then the only way to save the implement was to bury it in mud okay. overnight well. in order to <clears throat> re-sacralize the object, and for them, those rituals were a way of again of surviving. They were holding on to a continuity. It really mattered to them. But my mother and my stepfather just were not interested at all. Later, as I think you know, my mother converted, as did Gillian on her deathbed. Um, but that's, to Christianity. To Christianity, yes, for very different reasons. I think. My mother should speak for herself, but I would say that was to do with getting away from Jewishness, whereas for Gillian it was to do with embracing an, a, a kind of an ethic and love of Christianity. In fairness, my mother also thinks it's a more humane ethic, the Christian ethic. So I think they, in a way they had that in common, but for Gillian, Christianity was a continuation of her Jewishness. It was not a repudiation of it. She felt, this conversation we had the last time we met, she felt very, very Jewish. I'm reminded of a Story I'll just tell you, you don't have to put this in, but uh, when I was launching Independent Jewish Voices with my wonderful friends and colleagues um, 10 years ago now, um, and at the same time the ICA asked me to go on to a program, a, a panel on the non-Jewish Jew, and I thought about it very carefully. I thought, I'm just about to be involved in launching Independent Jewish Voices. This is probably not a moment to define myself as a non-Jewish Jew, much as I respect Isaac Deutscher and the way he elaborates that concept and so on and so forth. So Eric Hobsbawm was meant to be on the panel and he didn't go on it in the end. And a few a while later, I bumped into him and I said, Eric, why, why weren't you on the panel at the ICA on the non-Jewish Jew? And he said, I may be a non-Jewish Jew, but I'm a very Jewish non-Jewish Jew. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I sort of understand the non-Jewish Jew type of... I mean, my father's Jewish, my wife is Jewish, my child is Jewish, and, you know, and I'm I'm a priest. So I have that. I feel I live in a very Jewish Jewish world um, without being Jewish. Um, so I sort of completely understand that. Well, I feel 100% Jewish, um, 
And for me, one of the best statements ever made about this was when Freud is asked, uh, or actually he describes this in the he preface to the Hebrew edition of Totem and Taboo. He says, I'm ignorant of holy writ. I do not know the language of my forefathers. I do not share the national aspirations of my people. How can Ask me how I can then be Jewish, what is left of Jewishness, and I will tell you its very essence. And I love that because he wasn't a Zionist, although he did end up having been very doubtful about it, supporting the uplifting of the country and so on. Uh, not statehood, but the idea of a migration and a spiritual regeneration of Palestine. So he wasn't a Zionist. He didn't. He wasn't a religious Jew in any way, but he felt there was something to do with innate belonging and tradition. Um, as Yerushalmi says, the interminability, if not of Judaism, of Jewishness. And I really feel that very much too. And and so that comes from that still comes from home you get despite your mum's reservations or resentments about uh you know what uh, she wasn't allowed she wasn't allowed to do <clears throat> the restrictions of of re a religious life um you took some of those values and they've and they've they've been there all the way through university and and your writings well, they <clears throat> they came to the fore when I was asked to write on Dorothy Richardson by Brian Chayette. Um, actually, no, they came to the fore when I was working on Sylvia Plath, which is now, okay, so it's 20, nearly 30 years ago. And I just felt the whole thing, <clears throat> I just felt the whole thing bubbling up and I was thinking this is this is something I need to be more connected to in a more positive and creative way. But they also came up again hugely when I found myself involved in the Israel-Palestine conflict. So I was very moved by, for example, and you'll feel connected here, or I'm sure you have a connection, the full-page advertisements in Haaretz by rabbis for human rights who would say, you know, Judaism is to do with the tradition of justice and righteousness. You know, the famous lines, justice, justice ye shall pursue. And we feel that what is happening in Israel towards the Palestinians flouts Jewishness, even though it's being done in the name of the Jews. And that really, you know, reading people like, well, like the, the Rabbis for Human Rights, but also reading wonderful writers like Shulamit Harevan, who is famous in Israel, uh, as is Hizar Smilansky, but they're not known over here, the ones who are known here. Amosos and David Grossman and so on. But these are the founders of Israeli Hebrew letters after the founding of the state. And the way she talks about the tradition of Jewish righteousness, justice, equality, the fairness, stranger, humanity. Oh, remember that you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I mean, that is, you know, that is such a wonderful saying. And also, of course, uh, Freud's insistence that Moses was an Egyptian and you think what on earth is he doing and you realize what he's saying is be founded by a stranger think of your people as founded by the person you're trying to exclude from your group and we will not have the divisions and the viciousness and the violence that divides groups in our time and he was producing a narrative for Moses that made him a multiple figure, a fraught figure, a torn figure, a figure rejected by his people and a foreigner. It's playing with this sort of fantasy of purity of origins, isn't it? I mean, yeah. this whole idea that you come from pure... We, we had um, the historian Tom Holland on here a while ago, and he was talking about... Um, he was talking about 
um, Mecca um, having been, in his words, invented in the sand. And the sand was, the desert was, a purity of origins type of story, like the virgin birth, like all these sorts of um, mythologies, as, as he wanted to put it. And and this is this is another one, the, the Moses story. Yeah, well, Freud starts Moses' monotheism by saying he knows he's going to provoke ire because he will be seen as robbing the Jewish people of their favourite son by insisting that he was an Egyptian. And the more unlikely it becomes that Moses was an Egyptian, the more interesting it is that Freud wanted him to be one. Yeah. Uh, because he really is saying, just open your hearts, open your, open your homes, open your nations, and if you don't, you will produce an unjust and discriminatory polity, which will lead to violence. So I think it's one of his most prescient texts. Is it, I mean, when you, when you were talking there about the stranger, I just my mind returned to what you were saying about growing up in Southall, with, you know, being made very consciously aware right from a very early age that there was difference and difference was politically significant and ethically significant. I went to Ealing Grammar School and I remember one of the, one of the smartest girls in the class saying, my mum tells me what to do when they come at me in their hordes on the other side of the street, on the, across the street. She says, you just cross the street, darling, you just get off the other side of the street. And there was also this rumour that the migrants were dirty. Well, my stepfather was a GP. So he was going into the homes of the migrants and the working class, the white British working class. And he said, let me tell you, the migrants' homes are perfect. They are absolutely pristine. This is sheer prejudice. And that really stayed with me because I just thought, what is going on here? These, these forms of hatred. They were, I mean, it really was amazing to be living in Hayes, middle class in a working class town, next to South Hall that was... Asian and expanding and sort of beginning to sort of palpitate with the racial tensions that would explode 20 years later. And then we also had to go through Hounslow on the way to school, which was where one of the last quote unquote lunatic asylums of Great Britain. And we'd be on the top of the bus and it would be pouring with rain and they'd be playing in the fields and our wonderful Irish mother's help would say, oh, the lunatics. And then she, well, of course they are. Right. So really, it was as if on all sides, we were surrounded by these these challenges to the safe life our parents thought they created for us, which is just look and see. Uh, am, I, am I right in saying that I've read somewhere that your mum and you and your sisters were uh, encouraged to be pretty vigorous cleaners? <laughs> it's house in, cleaners. It's this is in right. the mother's book. Yes, absolutely. We had to clean the house every day. My mother would deny this, by the way. Okay. So it's a, it's a fight. It's a, this is a fight of memory, right? <clears throat> but a feat and a fight of memory. Because I remember it as if it was yesterday. Before we went to school, we had to clean the whole house with three cloths, wet, dried, and methylated spirits. <laughs> Um, and if we didn't do it, it really felt as if something awful would happen. That right. sort of like the safety of the world depended on it. And what I found myself writing on the book on mothers that just came out this year is that I think the awfulness of life for 1950s mothers, when they had neither feminism nor I would add psychoanalysis, because I think you need both. We can come back to that if you like. But anyway, they had neither feminism they definitely didn't have feminism or psychoanalysis, and they didn't, definitely didn't have freedom. There was this injunction, not just for the women to go back into the homes from the munitions factories, which was already something, but to render the home they created a kind of perfectibility, to make it pristine, 
to make it glow, to make it shine. And I see this Pollution-free as, temple. Yeah, beautiful. I see this as Abraham and Tarek again, which is to say that the injunction wasn't just to silence. It was to cleanliness. Yeah. It was to something where there would be no sign of damage. Everything had to be re-rendered perfect every day. Otherwise, what would come up through the cracks of the floor would be too ghastly. And I now feel that that generation of 1950s mothers was burdened with an impossible psychological task to make the world good and safe, which meant... Keep all that evil at bay, all that fear and terror and everything. Which means that, you know, if you take Winnicott, who wrote his essay in 1949, I think the... I think he wrote his essay on hate and the countertransference, where he lists the 18 reasons a mother has to hate her baby, including my favourite, which is she can neither eat him nor have sex with him. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Okay. so this is Winnicott writing this essay. It's so counterintuitive because, you know, mothers are meant to love their children, which, of course, we do. But um, nonetheless, I think he's writing a counterintuitive account of the violence, psychic violence of being a mother at the very moment where another whole discourse is shutting women into the home, telling them to clean up their act psychically and literally clean the house spotless, as if these mothers were exonerating the crime of the war, as if it was their task to make it all okay. I'm going to make a crazy analogy. My analogy would be with Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe in America, the perfectibility of that beauty was meant to be about how capitalism and desire and consumerism and availability of women was there to make America pristine at a moment when McCarthyism was starting, we were having the Korean War build up, we were going to have the Vietnamese War, capitalism was taking over Europe. It was the beginning of something very ugly, which has lasted to this day. And my reading of Monroe is that she, her beauty was meant to be the foil to the corruption, political, ethical, consumerist that was unfolding at the same time. So I've got my eyes peeled, if you like, for moments in the culture, whether it's my mother's life or or Monroe, where an impossible demand is being made on you to make, this is the heart of the mother's book, to make the world okay when it isn't. It isn't. And that's the mother. That's the that's the that's the thing that we lose about that we that we don't tell that we don't tell ourselves about being a mother. That that's something that we we try and pretend we 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 try and pretend, deny all of its complex ambivalences and. Absolutely, uh, uh, you know, and I think it makes mothers very despairing because, and it, it's such rubbish because if you're a mother, the two things you know, is that the world is unfair and unjust. And that you are psychically complex because your mood changes 10 times every second, right? And you're capable of love you never thought you would experience and rage you never thought you would experience. And you have to subdue your own violence and you have to sort of subdue your own love as well. I mean, it's it's so complex, but you wouldn't think so, would you? And I think the irony is that mothers know that's rubbish in direct proportion to them being expected to perform it. And that's why I think there's such hostility why, to mothers Why do mothers lie to each other so, so um, uh, all the time? Oh. When, when they meet up, is this right or not? I mean, I, you know, so there's a sort of competitive, everything's going so well um, that, that you see in mothers' groups. I mean, I, I have a uh, nearly two-year-old um, boy, so I've... I've you know, been witnessing mums coming together and talking. And mums, 
all the mums that come together are all doing incredibly well. I, and I and I feel this is different from what happens to to blokes. If I get together with we can actually have a jolly good. Complain. God, I'm really pissed off, and I'm you know, and I and I want to have a drink, and but you know, we can. Have a, but th- am I right in saying that? Have I got that wrong? That, that women find that more difficult to do. I think they do because I think the expectation on them is that they'll not only make the baby okay, but the world okay for the baby, and both okay for the father if there's a father around or the partner, and. There's a kind of expectation on them, which is kind of ferocious. I mean, the, yeah. the the competitiveness of mothering is something I just was not prepared for. You know, which is you know, my my John has been on solid since he was two <laughs> months old, or or my flow, you know, walked at seven months, or you know, my die has been speaking since she was eight months or whatever. And you just think, oh, for God's sake, shut up. You know, it's one of my neighbours who was really brilliant said to me, don't worry, Jacqueline, they're all on solids and dry by the time they walk down the aisle. <laughs> <laughs> so you can stop competing with each other. But I also think that there's much more on things like Mumsnet and other sort of sites, there's much, much more conversation now about how hard it is. Okay. Although it gets into big trouble. So Rachel Cusk's A Life's Work, which is a devastating account of her feeling of complete disenfranchisement and the visceral mess of motherhood, which I think is incredibly important because it puts you in touch with the body in pieces. Uh, and yet you're meant to present this baby as clean and tidy and you as perfect and all this rubbish. I think I'd quite like to talk a little bit about Israel because it's important to me, as you know, I'm married to an Israeli and and you've um, written uh, a lot and thought a lot about the current state of Israel and Zionism and so forth. And in a way you've sort of, one of the things that you've done is sort of put Israel on the couch, I guess, a bit. Does that does that uh, well? Does I that try and avoid that. Well, I try and avoid that because I don't think you can engage in the psychoanalysis of nation states. I think what I certainly tried to do in the book, the question of Zion, was discuss the complex psychic agenda which underpinned the notion of founding a state. And what I also tried to do was to look at thinkers like Ahad Ha'am. Who's, who's, Ginsburg. Uh, yeah, yeah, Ginsburg, yeah. who really believed in the rejuvenation of the Jewish spirit in Palestine, but didn't believe in statehood. Culturally, yes. Yeah, but didn't believe in state, the nation state, although he slightly changed his mind later, as many people, of course, did. Um, but he talked about the idea of what it would mean for a group of people to work together without appropriation. And that idea of... Being without appropriation is... What does that mean? It means you can be in a space without having to exert mastery over it. Okay. So when, for example, Amira Haas came to discuss at uh, Intelligence Squared the proposition Zionism today has become bad for the Jewish people, she stood up and said, the only thing is whether you want to be master or not. That's all... That matters. Now, the idea that the problem is mastery, the idea that you can control, legislate, decide, expel another people, is very, very close to the psychoanalytic idea that we, the ego is not master in its own home because we are subjects of the unconscious. We dream, we make slips, we have thoughts we wish we didn't have, we have wishes we would die rather than fulfill, but we can't keep help ourselves 
from having them. So I think both in the critique of the nation state as a form of absolute self-definition, destination, redemption, that for me rings with the delusion of an ego that thinks it can control the human mind. So it's not that I'm putting Zionism on the couch because people would and did object to the idea that I was. It's much more that I think psychoanalysis has things to say about the forms of identification of the state and with the state that I think are causing so much damage in the conflict in the Middle East as we speak. Were your um, your mum and dad... Zionists? Do they have any sort of Zionist sort of like, did they sort of get why it would be necessary given their history? No, they didn't. But my father, I mean, I was very proud of my father because he was non-Zionist in the run-up to the creation of the nation state. I thought, my goodness, he was aware that there was an injustice going to be perpetrated. He could see the complexity of it. But no, I was very naive. He was not a Zionist because he wanted to be British. And he was one of the group who felt that the creation of a Jewish nation state would remove his belonging in Britain, and he didn't want that. But then he would always say to me, as the moment Israel was founded, he became one of the most fervent Zionists on record. It was very hard for me to talk about my politics on this matter with my father and with my stepfather, but my mother is very critical of what Israel is doing. In fact, my mother goes further than me in that she thinks Israel should never have been created. Mm. Whereas I well, say, you have to understand why that happened. You have to start from there. But it's something that's close. Well, the one thing that uh, strikes me about your work is it's it's something, this is something you don't, you're never going to leave alone. You know, this is something you return to again and again, the sort of, the the whole idea of Israel as a moral project and it's, and its failures uh, in terms of its moral project or whatever, obviously the 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 the, um, the occupation and all of that sort of stuff. But that that's and and the way in which well, you talked before about Israel fulfilling or not filling its its sort of moral obligations that, that come from its own tradition. Well, I think it's very difficult when uh, Independent Jewish Voices made a film last year to mark the anniversary of the Balfour Declaration. I felt it very important to say that this really is a tragedy because the need of the Jewish people for national self-determination, I think, cannot be contested given what happened in the heart of Europe. I mean, it makes total sense. But that it should be done in the way that it was at the expense of a whole other people. So the Balfour Declaration talks about promises that a, a national home for the Jewish people will not be created to the detriment of the existing civil and religious rights of the non-Jewish population. Well, one, it doesn't say political. And two, it does not name them. They're not even Arabs, let alone Palestinians. They're simply non-Jewish. You can see the problem as germinating from there. But one of the shocking things when I taught my course on Palestine, Israel, Israel, Palestine politics and the literary imagination was the treatment of the Mizrahi and Sephardim. So that you can't even say that Israel was the state for the Jewish people. There are already discriminations that are being made inside that. Um, So yes, they do bring in the Mizrahim, but they treat them very, very badly. There's an inherent Ashkenazi sort of default uh, priority. Yes, yes. I mean, obviously, once Begin was elected, that 
that changed things to some extent. And it is changed now. It is changed now. But one other thing I will say, which perhaps should go in, is that when Independent Jewish Voices were launched, we said we believe that the history, our history as Jews, should have made it absolutely central to the Jewish self-definition of statehood, that it should not be at the expense of another people, even if you can see the historical urgency of what happened, which I can. If you think of Jewishness in terms of those traditions of justice and and uh, righteousness, yeah. then you cannot help but be very disappointed in Jewish terms for what is happening now. Not to speak of the fact that Netanyahu refused to condemn Hungary's condemnation of George Soros, which was manifestly anti-Semitic. And you have to ask, what is Netanyahu doing buddying up with the Hungarian leader, who we know is... There's such shocking anti-Semitism in, yeah. in, in Budapest. And yes. I was there last time. You know, yeah. graffiti and... Uh, yeah. What, what's your next project? I'm putting together a collection of essays on violence called On Violence and On Violence Against Women which will bring together some thinking I've done around feminism and violence because it's so come back onto the agenda with rape as a war crime, sexual harassment, Me Too, uh, and so on, that, you know, I'm part of a generation of feminists who felt that the question of violence against women had been monopolized by radical feminism by Andrea Dworkin, Catherine McKinnon, and we weren't happy with that. We weren't happy with the vision of masculinity and womanhood that that produced, but we now have to go back and rethink some of that because it's become such a pressing concern. But I've also been writing about Oscar Pistorius and what that what that case tells us about race and disability and gender and how to try and think about it in South Africa. You you, you love the most difficult issues, don't you? I have been told um, that before. You do. You do. There's a, there's a sort of like you you make a beeline for the most emotionally psychically complex well i often say no though i mean when the i have this relationship with a lot of review of books that where mary Kay wilmers will propose me a subject like she proposed me suicide bombing so i wrote it and then she proposed honor killing and i just said to her why do you want to walk me to another storm all right so i don't always choose these topics they choose me <laughs> but she, you're right I promised myself before I came into this interview that I wasn't going to ask you about your sister because um, I'm interviewing you, not your sister. But I'm, I was so influenced by your sister that I've suddenly changed my mind in the last second. And I just wanted to do that. And I apologise for that because... You don't have to apologise. Because... And I don't really know what I want to ask you about Gillian. But Gillian was um, your brilliant sister who, for me, was one of my foremost... Uh, philosophical influences and uh, um, and and also influenced other people within strangely weirdly within the Church of England you know like Rowan uh, Williams like 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 Rowan Williams uh, and uh, and the sort of radical orthodoxy movement that came through and so forth it's extraordinary that from the story that you're telling me, because your sister had a similar background and went to St Ilda's and Oxford and you know a similar narrative to you. Uh, and then ends up with this. Uh, for me, the conversion to Christianity is extraordinary uh, at the end of her life. Was it the Bishop of Coventry on when she died? Was, was, that, was that something that shocked you? It didn't shock me because it built up over quite a long time. 
I needed to understand it, which is why one of our last conversations was about it. I needed to be reassured that it wasn't a repudiation of her Jewishness. And indeed, it clearly wasn't. It was an extension. So if you visit her graveyard, it has a Star of David and a cross on the headstone, which was very, very important to me and to my sister. Um, so I think it was part of her embracing the world rather than a rejection. Um, she had the most capacious, generous, expansive mind. She worked a small area in a way of, of German philosophy and its descendants and theology and so on. But within that, she moved mountains. And I don't have a simple thing to say about her, except that I think her work becomes more and more important. So Love's work, her extraordinary memoir, has been published as a New York Review of Books classic with a preface by Michael Wood and Geoffrey Hill's wonderful poem in tribute to her. And three of her books are now Verso Radical Thinkers books. They've been reprinted. And of course... There have been books like Andrew Shanks's book because of his connection to Rowan Williams. I wrote the preface. Which, which, <laughs> indeed, so you know it well, uh, which are about Gillian's proximity to Rowan Williams, their yeah. extraordinary friendship and the influence she had on him. Uh, she was remarkable because she was a theologian and a Marxist and a philosopher. And she always said that she was too philosophical for the sociologists and too political for the philosophers. So she really was in a strange position, which she created all, all on her own. And just to speak more personally, she's hugely missed. Thank you very much for talking to me. The, the, um, the wonderful Rose sisters, your sister, but also you and the work that you do. It's like fascinating to hear about it. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you, Giles. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing. And I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. <laughs>